I'm back, y'all. I just returned from a 52-day road trip out west with some of the best buddies a person can ask for. My next episode will be covering more of those details. However, this episode, on the other hand, was supposed to come out about two or three weeks ago, but I lost my podcast mic out on the road. Shout out to my buddy Nick for letting me borrow his, and big shout out to my good old pals Allison and Julia for letting me bum out and record in their apartment. And without further ado... Buongiorno, and welcome to episode 11 of Zoopedia. My name is Zach Zoo, and I hope to provide y'all with a very nutritious helping of knowledge in the form of school meals today. Although school meals here in the States have had a pretty bad rep, school meals have a rich presence and history all throughout the world. We'll be diving into all sorts of nutritious servings around the globe with a side of how school meals became a standard part of school education here in the United States. If you're a fan of US history, you're in for a treat. School meals have been a part of pretty much every single major historical event in America's 20th century. Before we begin, of course, we gotta start off with a saucy side of fun facts in the form of the Zoopedia Fun Fact of the Day. I wish that school meals were more salivating than they actually are, but did you know that during your lifetime you will produce enough saliva to fill two standard-sized swimming pools? Pretty disgusting like the lunches from my high school, an average human produces between 1-2 to two liters of saliva each day, which is a maximum of 193 gallons of saliva per year. Considering the average life expectancy is just over 70 years, this gives a maximum of 13,500 gallons of saliva produced in an average lifetime. This is more than enough to fill two standard sized swimming pools. And with that being said, it's time to feed the masses. Let's sprint to the front of the lunch line and get acquainted with the taste of school meals all around the world. Let's take a journey. Countries around the world offer various kinds of school meal programs. Each weekday, millions of children from all standards and grades receive meals at their respective schools. School meals in 12 or more countries provide high energy food with high nutritional values either free or at economical rates. Shout out to Cardboard Pizza. The benefits of school meals vary from country to country. While in developed countries, the school meal is a source of nutritious meals, in developing countries, it is a motivational factor to send children to school and continue their education. In developing countries, school meals provide food security at times of crisis and help children to become healthy and productive adults, thus helping to break the cycle of poverty and hunger. The first school lunches were served in 1790 in Munich, Germany by an American-born physicist, Benjamin Thompson, also known as Count Rumford. No idea why that was his name, but who doesn't want to be referred to as a count? Thompson had spent his early days in New England, but as a royalist during the American Revolutionary War, he became distrusted and left for England in 1784. In Munich, Thompson founded the Poor People's Institute, which employed both adults and children to make uniforms for the German army. They were fed and clothed for their work, and the children were taught reading, writing, and arithmetic. Years later, Thompson would feed 60,000 people a day from his soup kitchen in London. That is a lot of chicken noodle. For reference, Soldier Field, home of the Chicago Bears, has a stadium capacity of roughly 61,500. Think about feeding a full stadium of Bears fans on a daily basis. Benjamin Thompson pioneered institutional feeding of the poor and is credited with introducing the potato to the diet of the European poor, inventing the double boiler, the kitchen range, baking oven, 
pressure cooker, and the drip coffee maker, which are the forerunners to the steam jacketed kettle, compartment steamer, and commercial ovens used for the school food programs today. Benjamin Thompson, a true man of culinary engineering. Thank this man for being the forerunner of all the random-ass quarantine meals and recipes y'all have been partaking in recently. Or, not really recently anymore, for the past five months. In the United Kingdom, significant changes have been made from when school meals were introduced in the 19th century. The first national school meals policy was published across the UK in 1941. The policy set the first nutritional guidelines for school lunches requiring balanced meals, which include the appropriate levels of protein, fat, and calories. In the United States, there was a social equity gap during the industrial era, aka early 1900s, and there was room for improvement in all realms of education. Poor children were experiencing malnutrition and hunger due to the low income of their families, and Philadelphia and Boston were the first two cities to institute school lunches in U.S. organizations such as Women's Education and the Star Center Association, who began serving hot meals to students for a cost that was affordable for most. Soon after, teachers started to notice the benefits of students both mentally and physically. The federal government wasn't involved until the Great Depression, around the 1920s, when farmers and laborers weren't doing well financially, and the school lunch program was a solution that benefited everyone. A school lunch in the States back in the 1920s revolved around bread, stews, boiled meat, which is kind of weird, and creamed vegetables. Not sure if seasoning was a thing back then, but I'm sure some school meals back then were more nutritious than some of the meals we were served in modern grade school. Moving on to types of school lunches around the world. Free school meals. Sweden, Finland, Estonia, and India are among the few countries which provide free school meals to all pupils in compulsory education, regardless of their ability to pay. Many countries provide meals to improve attendance rates. In India, where all the government school students are provided with free lunch meals through the midday meal scheme, staple food that varies between different states and regions is provided along with free education. Shout out to when government policy actually works properly. A study of a free school meal program in the United States found that providing free meals to elementary and middle school children in areas characterized by high food insecurity led to better school discipline among the students. Hangry syndrome affects people of all ages. Never forget. And to give you guys a purview of what kids across the world get fed on a daily basis, some of y'all are going to be extremely jealous, because American school lunches seem like tree bark in comparison. I wish you guys could see the pictures of these plates, because they look absolutely gorgeous. Except for the American one, of course. Haha. <laughs> Thank you to HuffPost.com for providing this list. In Brazil, students are presented with a delectable feast of pork with mixed veggies, black beans and rice, salad, bread, and baked plantains, que delicia. In Italy, kiddos are given an extraordinary plate of local fish on a bed of arugula, pasta with tomato sauce, caprese salad, a baguette, and huge red grapes, delicioso. In Finland, youngsters are served a complex platter of flavors consisting of pea soup, beet salad, carrot salad, bread, and panacao, which is basically a crepe with fresh berries. Quinca Herculesta. In South Korea, pupils are dished out in an extremely healthy and well-balanced coalition of fish soup, tofu over rice, kimchi, and fresh veggies. If you guys couldn't tell already, I've been saying how delicious in the language of the corresponding school meal, but I have no idea how to pronounce it properly in Korean, and no way I'm going to disrespect their language with how bad I would have butchered that. 
In France, a notably fancy country, adolescents are presented with a tasty and fancy, especially for a school meal, special of steak, carrots, green beans, brie cheese, and fresh fruit. Comme c'est délicieux. In Greece, probably the most aesthetically pleasing and healthy spread on the list, they serve their kiddos up with baked chicken over orzo, stuffed grape leaves, tomato and cucumber salad, fresh oranges, and Greek yogurt with pomegranate seeds. And that's like a $30 meal at Whole Foods. Pozo nostimo. In Spain, shout out to seafood lovers out there, y'all probably wish you grew up in Spain. The younglings get sauced up with sautéed shrimp over brown rice and vegetables, gazpacho, fresh peppers, bread, and a fresh orange. Que delicioso. I would like to sincerely apologize to everyone that hasn't eaten lunch today, and I know listening to this definitely isn't helping, but hopefully y'all got to vicariously experience some of the deliciousness kids around the world get to consume on a daily basis. And now moving on to the school meal programs here in the good old US of A. School meal programs in the United States. The biggest school meal program in the United States is the National School Lunch Program, NSLP, which was signed into law by President Harry S. Truman in 1946. Truman should be remembered more for this than he is for the atomic bomb, in my personal opinion. The purpose of the NSLP was to prevent malnutrition and provide a foundation for good nutritional health. Quote unquote, good nutritional health might be a bit of a stretch, but we'll cover that in a later section. The text of the National School Lunch Act, which established the program, called it a quote-unquote measure of national security to safeguard the health and well-being of the nation's children and to encourage domestic consumption of nutritious agricultural commodities. Lots of syllables in there. The NSLP currently operates in more than 100,000 public schools, nonprofit private schools, and residential care institutions. It provides more than 5 billion low-cost or free lunches per year to eligible students with the goal of ensuring nutritious meals for children who might not otherwise have access to a proper diet. In 2012, it served more than 31 million children per day. That's 6 million more than the entire population of Australia. Crikey! Pre-World War II era. Until the 1930s, most school lunch programs were volunteer efforts led by teachers and mothers' clubs. These programs drew on the expertise of professional home economics. For the people who began these programs, school lunchrooms were the perfect setting in which to feed poor children and, more importantly, to teach immigrant and middle-class children the principles of nutrition and healthy eating. Thus, the original intent of school meal programs was not primarily to increase the food security of impoverished children and alleviate educational problems, but rather to instill cultural norms. Because food is such an integrated part of society, obviously because we need it to survive, duh, people tend to forget that traditional cuisine operates as an expression of cultural identity. During the Great Depression, the numbers of hungry children seeking food overwhelmed lunchrooms. Thus, local programs began to look to state governments and then the national government for resources. The national government began providing funding for school lunches on a small scale as early as 1932. Just for reference for how long ago this was, 1932 was also when Amelia Earhart completed the first non-stop solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean by a woman. Expect an episode about Amelia and her high-flying adventures eventually. This initial school funding originated from New Deal agencies such as the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and the Civil Works Administration. 
Just an American history refresher, the New Deal was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations put into place by FDR in response to relief, reform, and recovery from the Great Depression. Pretty important stuff. Probably should have named the deal something a little more flashy and memorable than quote-unquote New Deal. Just my opinion. The federal government monitored supplies from commercial farmers and purchased surplus commodities. Schools served as an outlet for federal commodity donations. In 1935, the programs expanded through the Works Progress Administration and the National Youth Administration, both of which provided labor for school cafeterias. During World War II, the War Food Administration from 1943 to 1945 helped create school lunch programs. Eventually, the New Deal policies began to dissolve and farm surpluses decreased. However, there was still a desire to keep school lunch programs in place, so federal cash assistance began to be appropriated on a year-to-year -year basis, and the National School Lunch Program was developed. To summarize, the United States spent the early 1900s up until 1945 trying to figure out the kinks necessary to make school lunch programs as effective as possible, and everything was finally starting to be pieced together like a balanced meal after FDR's New Deal reforms expired. From 1946 to 2000, the United States Congress passed the National School Lunch Act in 1946 after an investigation found that the poor health of men rejected for the World War II draft was associated with poor nutrition in their childhood. Of course things started to change after the U.S. couldn't get enough soldiers for World War II. No ulterior motives at all. By the end of its first year, the National School Lunch Program had helped 7.1 million children. However, from the start, the program linked children's nutrition to the priorities of agricultural and food interests, and to the agenda of the United States Department of Agriculture, aka the USDA. Shout out to more ulterior motives and underlying agendas! In these early years, the program provided substantial welfare to commercial farmers as an outlet for surplus commodities, but provided few free meals to poor children and fed a relatively small number of schoolchildren. Very unfortunate that the people who needed help the most barely got any relief, even though the program was specifically quote-unquote dedicated to them. In the 1960s, a group of mainstream national women's organizations began focusing on the shortcomings of the National School Lunch Program, I'm going to start referring to it as the NSLP now, and the evidence they presented became crucial to congressional debates on race and poverty. Absolutely insane how these debates are still going on today and leading to riots and protests. Black lives haven't mattered in so long in the eyes of the government, and it's ludicrous to think about the ample amounts of opportunity for change to occur throughout the history of our country. Go give NPR's podcast Code Switch a listen if you're interested more about this specific topic. In 1962, Congress amended the NSLP, changing it from a distributor of state-regulated grant aid to a permanently funded meal reimbursement program. Basically, Congress finally took out all the sneaky loopholes that benefited business and made it so the NSLP finally directly targeted students that needed the meal programs. In 1969, President Richard Nixon pushed Congress to provide funding for school lunches beyond the reimbursement program, declaring, quote-unquote, the time has come to end hunger in America. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. Wow. In between, in 1966, Congress passed the Child Nutrition Act, which stated that educational progress was an objective of the school meal programs. The bill, signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson, created the Federally Subsidized School Breakfast Program, SBP, which supplemented the existing lunch program by providing low-cost or free breakfasts 
to students at public and nonprofit private schools. Ah, if only Lyndon B. Johnson was known as the free breakfast dude instead of the guy that sent 47,434 soldiers to die in the Vietnam War. The former, definitely way more wholesome. The Child Nutrition Act also created the Summer Food Service Program and established National School Lunch Week. And the National School Lunch Week is basically a celebration of the success of the NSLP, which is pretty cool, but does that make the NSLP a narcissist? Welcome to my shower thoughts. By the end of the 1970s, many advocates saw privatization as the only way to keep school lunch programs going. Fast food from private companies began to be served in cafeterias rather than more nutritious meals. Golly. I miss Papa John's being served in my high school cafeteria, although super unhealthy and definitely a really good idea that they ended up removing it from the cafeteria, it was still an awesome time to be in high school. I remember kids literally buying a full box of pizza from the cafeteria and sharing it with their friends. Oh, the nostalgia. In 1994, a number of changes were made to the NSLP primarily to standardize the nutritional quality of school meals. Dietary guidelines were proposed to take effect in 1996, and the USDA launched the Healthy School Meals Initiative to improve nutritional education for school-age children. By the end of the 20th century, the NSLP was the nation's second-largest domestic food program after the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, more commonly known as food stamps. Things were starting to look bright and cheery for the NSLP at the turn of the 21st century, but as with any fantastic coming-of-age story, there must be challenge and adversary along the way. The 21st century. In 2004, as the childhood obesity crisis came into national focus, the USDA urged school districts to establish wellness policies and initiatives tailored to local needs. The USDA regulations were intended to strengthen the nutritional education nationwide, while giving schools the autonomy to decide what types of foods could be sold in their cafeterias and vending machines. Childhood obesity es no bueno. I barely know anyone that had a particularly healthy relationship with food growing up, but here's the next generation taking care of that issue. No more birthday cake for breakfast anymore, and shout out to everyone else that did that as a kid. In 2007, the USDA hired the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine, to develop recommendations for bringing school food up to date with current science. Dr. Virginia Stallings, a pediatric gastroenterologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who led the IOM team, concluded, Since the school meal programs were last updated, we've gained the greater understanding of children's nutritional needs and the dietary factors that contribute to obesity, heart disease, and other chronic health problems. Glad to hear the experts agree that elementary schoolers shouldn't be dealing with high blood pressure. In 2010, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act made the most sweeping changes in the history of the NSLP, putting vending machine snacks and a la carte menu items under federal regulation for the first time. Championed by First Lady Michelle Obama and directed by the USDA, the law established guidelines requiring more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains in school meals. The guidelines, which took effect in the 2012-2013 to school year, also limited sodium, fat, and caloric intake based on students' age. Thank you, Michelle Obama, for making students healthier on a daily basis, but I'd be a liar if I didn't say I was slightly salty she took away my big cookie privileges. Big is an understatement. It was the size of a small frisbee and probably had around a thousand calories in the whole thing. But boy oh boy, I don't think I'll ever have a cookie again that can compare to how delicious that thing was. Also, I remember our high school didn't necessarily adjust the foods in our vending machines, 
but instead just reduced our portions. I remember going to the vending machine one day, buying a pack of Pop-Tarts, and there was only one Pop-Tart in the package. The cost of Pop-Tarts in the vending machine remained the same, but we only got one instead. The amount of betrayal was beyond substantial. But before I delve deeper into my unnecessarily dramatic vending machine PTSD, let's get back on topic. Historically, the NSLP and other food programs have been used to improve the health of children who are food insecure or at risk of malnutrition. More recently, however, the NSLP has made a significant shift to fight childhood obesity as well as malnutrition. Unhealthy eating patterns in overweight children, like those in underweight children, are often tied not only to individual choices, but also to social and economic circumstances such as family income and access to fresh foods. Tell me how fresh broccoli is more expensive than a meal at McDonald's. Absolutely wild. School meal programs provide an avenue by which these socioeconomic circumstances can be targeted to improve children's diets. Most students benefit from the NSLP, even if they don't receive free lunches because the program also subsidizes full-price meals in the majority of U.S. schools. I definitely had some friends back in elementary school where if the NSLP didn't exist, they literally wouldn't eat that day. Extremely tragic, but at least they had the school meals. Now to break down the rest of the article into digestible information because of course Wikipedia being Wikipedia, it loves to drone on and on about all sorts of minutia detail that really no one other than policy writers or people who have no lives care about. Moving on to costs and funding. For the fiscal year of 2011, the cost of the school breakfast program was $3 billion compared with $10.8 million in 1970. The cost of the National School Lunch Program was $11.1 billion in 2011, compared with $70 million in 1947. Doesn't take an economist to understand that that's an absolutely ridiculous increase in prices, even if you're accounting for inflation. Budget trends suggest that meal production costs over the last five years have been increasing faster than revenues. A report by the USDA's Economic Research Service in July 2008 suggested, Quote-unquote, cost pressures may be a barrier to improving school menus in some cases. The nationally representative school lunch and breakfast cost study found that while the mean reported cost of producing lunch during 2005 to 2006 was below the reimbursement rate, about one in four school districts reported costs above the reimbursement rate. It continued, further, the mean full cost of producing a school lunch was higher than the reimbursement rate. This basically means that schools were spending so much money on school meals that they were ultimately going into a loss even with the government's financial help. To address this, the Healthy, Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010 required gradual increases in reimbursements until 100% of costs were covered. In addition, the USDA increased school food authority reimbursement rates by $0.06 cents per meal for the 2012-2013 school year. However, due to rising costs, private food services companies might be coming back to help cover these costs. Looks like my high school might have Papa John's back in the cafeteria again. Moving on to unhealthy meals and malnutrition. Unhealthy school lunches contribute to malnutrition in both the short term and the long term. In many cases, unhealthy adult eating patterns can be traced back to unhealthy school lunches because children learn from eating habits from social settings such as school. A 2010 study of 1,003 middle school students in Michigan found that those who ate school lunches were significantly more likely to be obese than those who did not. The NSLP really coming in hot with supporting their claim of preventing malnutrition and providing a foundation of good nutritional health. Promoting healthy eating in schools may reduce adolescent obesity by as much as 25%. 
One such effort is the Berkeley Food System, which uses vegetable gardens to promote education on healthy eating. Janet Brown, who started the project, explained that students were more likely to eat healthy foods such as fruits and vegetables when they were better introduced to them. This seems to be common sense, right? But I guess it actually makes too much sense to implement it. Moving on to obesity. Research has shown that 36% of participants in reduced-price school lunch programs are food insecure and 19% are obese. This is a huge yikes and a pretty blatant red flag. Red flag honestly might be an understatement. Studies comparing NSLP participants and non-participants have been inconclusive on whether weight gain rates differ between the two groups. The 2008 Economic Research Service study found, quote-unquote, similar calorie intakes for the participants and non-participants, but higher fat and sodium intakes for participants. The most obvious challenge to efforts to address such problems is that even if more nutritious foods are provided, there is no guarantee that students will eat them. Can confirm, the food waste at the bottom of my high school trash cans was by far mostly green. Additionally, the NSLP does not take into account the physiological differences among participants. Some children are smaller than others, some are more athletic, and some have metabolisms that require more calories than the NSLP allows. Wow, it's almost as if everybody's body functions differently from one another. Crazy thought. Three ideas have been proposed to address obesity in schools, however. Number one, expose students only to fruits and vegetables as snacks. A 2009 Journal of Nutrition study restricting snacks in U.S. elementary schools is associated with higher frequency of fruit and vegetable consumption found that children in schools with restricted snack availability had significantly higher frequency of fruit and vegetable consumption than children in schools without restricted snack availability, and suggested that a restrictive snack policy should be part of a multifaceted approach to improve children's diets. Sounds like a good idea that could definitely lead to lots of positive benefits, but wait until you hear this next one. Number two, educate all students about nutrition. Whoa, oh my god, what? That is absolutely preposterous. The fact that this hasn't already been a nationwide rollout gives me all sorts of migraines and headaches. A 2007 American Journal of Clinical Nutrition article Apple Project, two-year findings of a community-based obesity prevention program in primary school-aged children, stated a relatively simple approach providing activity coordinators and basic nutrition education in schools significantly reduces the rate of excessive weight gain in children. This is so obvious that it hurts to read. Number three, encourage healthier meal selection without restricting choices. Researchers at Cornell University have suggested techniques based on behavioral economics, such as placing white milk in front of chocolate milk in coolers, moving and highlighting fruit displays, and using appealing names for vegetables to improve palatability. And now that's an innovative use of marketing if I've ever heard of one. I know it sounds like I'm heavily bashing the National School Lunch Program, and I definitely am to a certain extent because there are plenty of flaws that can be easily adjusted to make the program way better than it currently is, but, at the end of the day, the benefits derived from the NSLP are way more significant than if it didn't exist at all. To close out on a positive note, we'll touch on educational attainment. Educational attainment. Studies have shown a positive correlation between school meal programs and increased food security. Among low-income children, the marginal food insecurity rate of those with access to the school breakfast program is lower than that of those children without access to the program. All Carfax so far have pointed in this direction for sure. This increase in food security has not been shown to have significant long-term health benefits, but 
it does have a positive impact on education. Subsidized lunches appear to encourage children to attend school and to free up food at home for other family members to consume. Public policy researchers at Georgetown University found in 2010 that increasing NSLP exposure by 10 percentage points results in an average increase in education of 0.365 years for girls and increases average education by nearly a year for boys. The researchers found that participation in the NSLP through grades 7 through 12 has a stronger effect on educational attainment than participating in the earlier grades does, whereas there is some evidence suggesting that participation in earlier grades is more important for the health outcomes. All in all, education is the most basic and necessary foundation for people to live better lives, which subsequently makes society better in the long run. Although there are plenty of issues in the system currently, I believe that the long-term outcome will make the United States a better place overall, and who knows? Kids who are positively impacted by the NSLP might be the ones who turn the program around and make it the best it can possibly be. Thank you guys for listening to a super long and convoluted episode of Zoopedia. I bet you never thought that school meals had such a complex background with deep historical roots because I sure as hell didn't. Never thought there would be a day where I would know so much about such a standardized and normal aspect of grade school life, but I hope you guys found this episode as fascinating as I did. Remember, if you have any ideas or suggestions, be sure to send them my way at zoopediapodcast at gmail.com, and I hope all of you guys are blessed with a healthy, nutritious, and fun-loving day. Cheers! <laughs>